All right, so let's talk then about the Lenten fast. What is Lent, what's going on with the fast, and then we'll work backwards from the details of the fast to the bigger picture of what we're talking about, why we fast at all. So Lent is a 40-day period of fasting and abstinence that prepares us for the Easter feast, for Easter week. Lent ends on Saturday before Palm Sunday. All right, Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week. And then Monday of Holy Week, we go right back to the fast. And we run that until Saturday. And then the vigil is the end of the fast and the beginning of the 40-day Easter feast. Notice the perfect parallelism. It's a 40-day fast. It's a 40-day feast. Okay, you're going to see this parallelism all the time. We never fast without feasting. We don't have these feasts without the corresponding fast. All right, and it's all about anticipation, readiness, and preparation for the full significance of our greatest of all feasts, which of course is our Easter celebration. Now, we examine and prepare ourselves during the Lent, Lenten period with three elements. The first one is fasting and abstinence. And I'll define those shortly. Okay, the second one is prayer. And the third one is alms giving. We do all three of these in a renewed or more developed way. Obviously, you should be praying, right? It's a good idea to be praying. God is your Father, so pray to Him. During Lent, we pray more, where we pray more in more depth, okay? Uh, it's normal. People give to the church. You know, it's what people do, obviously. Uh, during Lent, we try to do a little more. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the church. I mean, the, maybe the deacon wouldn't appreciate me telling you this, but the truth is almsgiving is giving to the poor. So if there's another way that you want to help somebody, uh, that's the time to do it. In fact, it links up with fasting. Sometimes we say the money you don't spend on choice foods Right? Why don't you just save that, put it in a jar, and then you can throw that into the offering plate as extra to help for people in need. All right, we have three elements that characterize our Lenten observance. All three are going to prove to be important and linked, and I'll fully develop that later when we talk about Jesus' temptation. Now, people understand giving alms, people understand prayer, but fasting and abstinence is sometimes a little tricky, and we don't really know quite what it means. So what I want to do is focus on those two elements, And let's define and differentiate these, because they're actually different things. Fasting is about reduction of quantity of food and drink. Okay? Abstinence is the elimination, notice the difference, of choice foods. In particular, we tend to mean meat and birds. And yeah, meat includes pork, right? Yeah. Which is why, if you're familiar, if you've ever heard about the famous Catholic fish fries some churches will do on Fridays during Lent, uh, we eat fish because fish is fine. Uh, we don't eat steaks, 
you know, big juicy cheeseburgers, a huge pork, because those are very rich, fat, celebratory foods. So when we're fasting and abstaining during abstinence, we eliminate those types of things. Do we include wine in the elimination? We do, do we not? Um, <laughs> during the Friday fast, nobody, do people drink beer at uh, fish fries? Okay, well, let's not talk about that then. That's just fine. Okay, so the traditional fasts comes out of the monastic tradition within the church. And in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the monks have four elements. And the first one is uh, meat. The second one is uh, wine. The third one is uh, dairy, which includes eggs. And the fifth one, whoops, fourth one is oil. Exactly. Okay, and the monks, remember monks are different than the rest of us, okay? They will do all of this for all 40 days. Okay, this is a very extreme version of the fast. All 40, now this is the Eastern Orthodox monks. Some of our Western Catholic monks will do this too. This is all four levels. Now, in the Eastern Orthodox churches per se, okay, if you were Eastern Orthodox, the whole congregation does as much of this as they can. And there's different levels based on where you are and what you're able to do. If you grew up Greek Orthodox and you're in a Greek Orthodox family, you have been doing this ever since you can remember. And the entire church does it as a whole. And so there's this kind of, everyone knows what's going on. We all join in and we all make a different kind of food because that's what we do. In the Western church, we don't have quite the same tradition. So I'll talk about the difference. But yes, there are versions where we check off more and for a longer period. But in the Western church, which is what we are, because we're Roman Catholics, the Easter are the other side, the Byzantine side. Okay, we have in Lent, Fasting, which is a reduction of quantity, and abstinence is which we eliminate meat and poultry. So we don't eliminate all of our dairy or all of our wine or all of our oil. Essentially, we're up here, level, <laughs> level one. No, we'll talk about when. Yes? Do you know why meat in particular? Well, it's, I haven't yet fully explained the rationale of the fast. Okay, and that's a great question. I appreciate that you want the metaphysics and the philosophy to justify the practice. For some bizarre reason, I decided to start with the rules and then work backwards. But your methodology, I like. That's normally my thinking. Not about hooves. Okay, it's about, it's about the energy, the value, and the cost of these things. But you had said something about celebratory. That sounded like special. Yes. And traditionally, most people couldn't afford meat at all. You know, uh, you didn't have beef at all. You didn't have pork. Well, certainly if you were Jewish, you didn't have pork because they didn't eat pork at all. Uh, and if you had meat, I mean, maybe you'd get some fishes and maybe you'd eat a little bit of a dove or if you were really lucky, you'd have a chicken now and then. And when you killed the fatted calf, that was... That was a major big deal. And that's why, you know, for the Jews at Passover, they used to kill the lamb. That was a major thing economically, wiping out one of their lambs. All right. Uh, and most people didn't drink wine either in the ancient world. The primary alcoholic beverage was beer. Everybody drank beer. The only people that could afford wine were the wealthier people. 
And that's another reason why the Eucharist is so significant that Jesus chose to use wine, not beer. Okay? It's a celebratory act. So there's, that's part of the reason we go in this direction. Again, the United States, are the way we eat and the things that we do are very different. I mean, all of us can buy a cheeseburger if we want. We can go to McDonald's and get a cheeseburger, right? Uh, even a steak, if you want to buy a steak, what's it going to cost you? 10, 15 bucks to get it and then cook it? It's not a big deal for us if you wanted to do this. Uh, but still, when you don't eat meat and you're used to it, it has an impact on you. And I'll talk about the therapeutic benefits of fasting, which have to do with this. Okay, but I haven't explicated that quite yet, all right? But that's a great question. But let me finish with, with the rules, as it were, so we all know the, the specifics so that you'll know what's expected. All right, so when do we do this? Well, again, the Eastern Orthodox do this for all 40 days. That's not what we do in the Western Catholic Church, all right? We have specific times when we do this. The first of the two major days is Ash Wednesday. So on Ash Wednesday, you're going to want to fast, and it's a reduction. You say, what's typical? Well, for a severe fast, an extreme fat, not, let's, I don't want to use the word extreme. Let's just say a serious fast, OK? A good rule of thumb is 50%. So whatever you typically eat, could just cut it in half, amount-wise. OK, amount-wise, 50%. And when you come into Ash Wednesday, we're going to be talking, if you listen to the readings and you see what happens, and then we'll all go up front, and you'll all get to participate. Okay, none of this crossing yourselves, not for Ash Wednesday, okay? All of you will participate in the receiving of the ashes. And if you've ever seen the Catholics going around with those little ashy smudge crosses on their heads, this is what we're going to do. Okay, and the, and the ash is representative of mortality and death. And the idea is to remind ourselves that we are mortal creatures before the most immortal and holy God. And so we start reminding ourselves of who we are in relation to the Most High. And so when we bow down and receive the ashes, we are in a sense remembering and acknowledging the glory and majesty of God vis-a-vis -vis ourselves. And remember, ashes is also back in the ancient times. You would tear your clothes in mourning and you would throw ashes up in the air and onto yourself. Okay, this is a very ancient way of showing mourning. And part of what we're doing in Ash Wednesday is starting Lent, we are mourning over our own sins but we're also mourning over the horror of what's going to come at the end of Holy Week when we kill the king. Remember, we killed our own king. You say, we? Yes, human race. He came incarnate and we took him out. So Good Friday is the second most severe fast day ever because this is when we commemorate and reenact the whole thing. And this is the most severe fast day in the entirety of the church because it is the greatest day of mourning. So as much as you can do, and we'll talk about limits and prudence in a prudential and healthy way. Okay, again, rule of thumb, 50%. This is not a mandatory rule. The 50% is just to give you an idea. We'll talk about uh, variations and degrees shortly. But I just want you to understand that these are the two most important fast days in the church, nothing greater than Good Friday. For those of you who are coming into the church the next day on Holy Saturday, okay, and the Easter Vigil, this is going to be an especially important Good Friday for you because you're preparing not just for Easter, the return of the King and all of these things. 
you are coming into the church. So you want to be really focused on your own personal preparation. Remember before a night was knighted? Then that night he spent the entire night in the chapel in prayer in preparation of what he was about to receive. Okay, you're not going to be spending the entire night in church unless, of course, you want to, but you need to stay awake for the service the next day. So, correct. On Good Friday, we do not drink wine. We do not have monster steaks. How did this come to be? Well, I'm going to get all to that. Very good question. Yes. Boy, you've been doing your homework. I love it. Okay, third element during Lent. Okay, Fridays during Lent. Yes. Mel Gibson has that Passion of the Christ film, which is very helpful. Absolutely. During the Fridays of Lent, we also practice both fasting and abstinence. Okay, and that's why on Fridays during Lent, you'll notice that, you know, Catholics eat fish or vegetables or cheeses, you know, cheese pizzas and shrimp on them or whatever. The, uh, you know, and, and again, you have to understand, if you go out and get king crab legs on Friday during Lent, you might be not quite catching the principle. Okay? So a simpler fish. Something, and we'll talk about why we fast at all, which will then help you understand. Yes, spaghetti would be a great thing as long as there's no meatballs. Okay. During Lent, if you do the addition of Lent, I think there's six weeks for 36 days. Uh, and then there's from Ash Wednesday to Friday, that's four more, that's 40 days. And you say, wait a minute, what about all the Sundays you left them out? We never fast on a Sunday. Why? It's communion. We're feeding the soul. And why are we feeding the soul and doing communion on Sunday? Why is Sunday so significant? Because of the resurrection. Every single Sunday is always a feast day in the church. Okay? It's always a feast day. So what we say is this, we relax the fast, right? So do we then just go all in to just get everything and say, finally, I can have all these things? No, but you don't fast either. So you're like, well, how does this work? When we talk about the philosophy of fasting, this is going to be up to you, okay? But relax the fast. We must always remember that the good Friday, the Fridays are anticipating the Sunday feasts. The Friday fast anticipates the Sunday feast. It's like nighttime, then morning. Winter to summer. We always have a rhythm, a cycle, okay? We never have a fast without a corresponding feast. And these Sundays, always remember, this is the feast of the resurrection. We always are joyful. But during Lent, the joy of the resurrection is still anticipatory because the blowout feast is Easter. And when we hit Easter, if you've been fasting, which you should be doing, this will be like an Easter you've never had. If you've never fasted before and abstained, be prepared for a completely different Easter experience. Okay, because it absolutely affects you in shockingly positive ways. Okay, anyone questions about the rules themselves, not the why of it, I'm about to lay that out, but what the rules are. Don't we give up a sin too? No, sin we give up all the time. <laughs> I meant like something that we struggle with. Say like I love ice cream, I'm just going to give that up for like 40 days. Okay, 
I haven't given a full explanation for this, but let's get into this because you're right. Four. Now this, these are the rules. But then you're on to something. There is a fourth element, the giving something up for all 40 days. And this is our attempt to map onto what we find in the monk community where they're doing something for the full 40 days. Jesus fasted and abstained for the full 40 days. And so what we tend to do, and again, I don't think this is obligatory, but this is a very common practice for Catholics, is to pick something that you really like and you say, okay, I'm going to set this aside for all 40 days. Right? And this is, of course, why we give baskets filled with chocolates to children on Easter. Because most kids, the thing their parents help them give up is chocolates and candy. And boy, now you understand the point of the Easter basket. You earn your Easter candy when for 40 days you have had no chocolate. Think about the, com the way it's done in America where we just give kids tons more chocolate than they were eating the whole time. Imagine if you had no chocolates for 40 days how that would increase your anticipation, right? So look into your life, you know, that's something that means something to you. But you know, if you're addicted, like most coffee drinkers, if you're addicted to coffee and you go off coffee for 40 days, you are gonna get splitting headaches. Are we saying you should put yourself in the hospital? No, all right? You gotta be, have thought and prudence in your choices that you make. But something that you like, maybe it's your ice cream, maybe it's your chocolates, maybe it's wine, and sometimes people will build on it. You say, well, last year we did this, now I'm gonna do that and add something more, okay? It's gonna be something you get to decide that you would like to do. Now, why? Why do we do the fast? Well, let me erase all this. Let's suppose you get drafted into the army back in the days when we had the draft. What does the uh, army do? During the Vietnam War, World War II, did they say, okay, swear here, take an oath to the Constitution to defend, and then the next day you're hitting the Normandy beaches. You're hitting Iwo Jima. Oh, by the way, here's a gun. Do we do that? No, what happens between those? Training. Training, boot camp, right? Nobody would think that you go into the military and you don't go into training with boot camp. Or what about if you're uh, you know, a normal civilian and you decide, you know, I think I'd like to run a marathon. It's only like 26 miles or so, right? How hard can that be? Now, if you talk to friends of yours who are runners, what are they gonna suggest you do? Train. Train. Maybe we can get you to 5K. Then <laughs> we'll see if you can do 10. Then maybe 15. Then, you know, then we'll switch from kilometers to miles, which are worse, and see how far you can go. But nobody just runs a marathon, right? Remember the first guy that did? He was a seasoned Greek warrior. And after he got there with a the message, he fell over dead. Even he wasn't ready. All right? So for significant feats of physical endurance and strength in athletics and in war, we train and prepare. That is what's going on when we fast. Okay? We are training and preparing You say, well, how? How are we preparing? Well, think about the driving passions within human nature. Okay? One of the driving passions within human nature is the desire to eat. 
We use food to fuel ourselves, but we also use food for lots of other things. Community, art, aesthetics, comfort, celebration, and just plain pleasure. It is fun to eat. All right? These are all the elements that come from our food. Imagine if you suddenly eliminated your favorite foods, and by favorite now I mean all the protein-rich meats, and you cut it down in amount. How would that affect you? Yeah, how would it affect you mentally? You desire. When you start a fast, what do you crave suddenly? All those things. All right? And at first, it's very, very frustrating. First three days, just push through. <laughs> After that, it gets, I'm not going to say it gets easier. It just is different. Okay? And of course, you don't have to do it for all 40 days. So, you go, yeah, th this is not nearly as difficult. If you get rid of the ice cream for 40 days, you might have more of a challenge. Okay? If you did it for the full 40 days, let's suppose you didn't have meat, level one, the orthodox fast, for the entire time. No meat all that time. What's that going to start to do, right? And then I'm going to give you a contrast just to help you understand. In the Orthodox tradition, the other driving human element, it's not just food. The other one is sex. Okay? In the Orthodox tradition, abstaining is talking about sex. So cu married couples will agree only by consent. Remember, fasting is something you can choose to do for yourself. In sexuality and marriage, you may not withhold sex from your partner. We're self-givers. So St. Paul says the only way you can participate in agreeing not to have sex with each other for the sake of the fast and abstinence is by mutual consent for purposes of prayer. And as soon as either party says, enough, game over, that's it. Okay, because sex is for you together as a couple. You understand? Again, never, never weaponize sex, never spiritualize sex. Say, well, I'm just so holy. If only you were. No, 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 no. If you're so holy, get into bed with your wife and go at it. That's love. But there are times, if you pull back on your sexual relationship with your spouse, if you pull back on the food that you typically eat, what's that going to do to your, you and your couplehood is your marriage? This is going to seriously test you. You are going to become irked. You're going to become irritable. You're going to become cranky. Now, in the Western tradition, we do not add this component. You're like, well, that's good. <laughs> okay. We don't do that. The food is enough. This alone makes you cranky and irritable. You say, well, why would I do that to myself? whole time you've been teaching us that the faith is about the fullness of human nature, and human nature requires a combination, a composite of mind and body, and the body is part of what orders and makes the mind materially function. Correct. And yet, all of that is true, and yet if your basketball coach makes you run extra hard and you hurt as a result, he says this is a good idea. And if the sergeant at boot camp makes you hurt and run extra hard and do push-ups and carry guns and do all these horrifying things, this is important and valuable, isn't it? And when we're parents, we have to discipline our children, and they don't always like it very much, but it's good for them, isn't it? The fast is our version 
of helping ourselves go through that practice. Because when I stop eating the things that I want to, it's harder to be nice. Who's going to feel it the most? Elisa. Who's going to feel the effect of her fast the most? I will. The people in your families are the people who are going to notice it. And that's exactly right. Because you look at each other and you say, we're fasting, aren't we? Yes. I'm feeling crankier and more irritable. So am I. OK. I'm choosing to love you in spite of how I feel. Me too. All right. And you muscle through, just like you have to run that extra lap around the soccer field, just like you have to do that extra march for the sergeant. You understand? Mm -hmm. You are now choosing to form habits that are stronger than what's ordinarily required. Which means when the going really does get tough, you're like, I'm kind of used to this. This was what we did at fasting. Natural disaster, I'm not going to be the person that whines and complains, you know, those kind of people. I pull up my shirt sleeves and I jump in. Take time to help others. Okay, sexually, if you, pro if you follow the sexual one, version of this, again, this is not required, I'm just saying as an example. When you and your spouse choose for the sake of prayer to abstain sexually, Imagine how this trains you to not be wanting to have affairs with other people. Okay, so the Orthodox can see that benefit. Again, this is not part of the Western tradition. Okay, I'm not saying you ought to do this. But I want to give you the example so that you understand what we're talking about here. We're talking about putting ourselves under deliberate stress. And then what do we do? We increase our almsgiving and our prayers. Remember, if you only do something negative and don't add the positive, the fast is useless for you. Fasting is the physicality. Prayer is the spirituality. Almsgiving is the charity. You understand? All three. The material, the spiritual, and love. You say it's almost sacramental. Absolutely. And you use the, the uh, cravings to remind you of those two things, right? Yep. Every time you feel like craving, you say, well, I'm just going to put three more dollars into my bowl, my bowl, my giving bowl. And I'm going to now deliberately choose to do something more loving to my wife. I'm going to do something more loving to my child. I'm going to do something more loving to my mom or my dad. Every time you feel it. And what are you doing? When it's harder to choose to do the right thing, you're stretching those virtue muscles. Okay? And then when you're really put to the test, when courage and endurance and fortitude are required, you're like, well, I've been practicing this every single Lent. Right? And this gives you more strength. Okay? So what we say is this. The fast is not for God. The fast is for you. Again, the fast is not for God. The fast is for you. Which is why what you do with respect to the 50%, the 40%, the 30%, what you decide to give up, the ice cream, plus the wine or the cheese, or maybe not at all, those elements are up to you. You have to look at yourself and say, what can I do? If you've never fasted before, don't go in with a gung-ho program of 12 things you're giving up, because you will not succeed. And then you'll be very disappointed. Do something reasonable. Okay? We have to be prudent and smart. 
If you are uh, diabetic, you better take great care when you start messing with your diet. Your medical duties require you perhaps not to fast so that you stay properly healthy and don't end up in the hospital. If you have bipolar or one of these mental disorders and your medicine and your diet are all part of a very careful balance that took months to finally dial in, don't you dare fast. Come up with something else to do. For the sake of the charity that you owe other people, don't compromise your health. If you are a nursing mother or a pregnant mother-to-be, your baby has primacy here. The church will not allow you. The church forbids you to fast because your duty of love is primary and you cannot fast and maintain the proper order for your child. You are forbidden to fast. Remember, we do everything for the sake of love. And we do everything except for faith, hope, and love. Those are the only three without limit. We do everything under the virtue of moderation. So when we practice the fast, we remember the virtue of moderation. We don't go too much. We don't go too little. And where we are in our lives and what's too much and too little depend on a whole range of factors and we're different people. And so you have to be honest with yourself. I recommend you have a fasting partner. If you're married, fiance, dad, boyfriend, girlfriend, you have a natural person who knows you, especially if you're married, your fasting partner, ideally it is your spouse because this is the person you eat the same food. Join forces, make it work, keep an eye on each other. And if your spouse says, I think that's a little too much, how are you going to drive your truck tomorrow? Right? And your answer is, God will drive my truck. I am being extra spiritual. No, you're not. You're being an idiot. And that is forbidden. Because prudence is always required. If you compromise your ability to do your job, you're not fasting properly. You're fasting to excess. Do you understand? Yes. So we have all of these limits. Again, another point. Fasting is for you. It's not for God. Similarly, fasting is for you. It's not for your neighbor. Jesus was so aggravated with the Pharisees because they'd come in and show off how much they were fasting. Right? Well, I'm doing this. What you're doing is private. It's free between you and God. It's between you and your fasting partner. And it's between you and your priest. If the priest challenges you about why you're looking so unhealthy all of a sudden during Lent, he has the right to ask you what's going on if you're pushing too far. Okay? The priest is responsible for us. But other than that, it's no one else's business what you're doing. So we don't broadcast it. We don't, end up in, we don't enter into competitive matches, men. Mm -mm. We don't get into games with each other because you know how we are. We love competition. Well, I'm going to outfast that guy. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is not the way we do this. Okay? The fast is not about your neighbor. The fast is not for God. The fast is for you as a spiritual discipline to help prepare you with extra prayer, extra charity of giving of alms, and to prepare you through those means to be ready for the Easter feast. Okay, let's look at how this began. So jump in with me to Jesus' experience in Matthew chapter 4. You have your Bibles with you or check your uh, phones if you didn't bring them with you. Matthew chapter 4. Sure hope it is Matthew 4. Oh yeah, it is. <laughs> okay, Matthew chapter 4. Let's have a look. 
Now, Jesus has just been baptized by John. This is the very, very beginning of his ministry. And the first thing he does, the, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards, he was hungry. Apparently, Jesus didn't eat anything but water. That's the tradition. Now, I've been to this site. It's 120 to 130 degrees by the day. The dry heat or humid? Dry. Horribly dry. Well, there's no water to drink. And it's way up high in the mountains. This isn't, a, don't think of the Sahara or like Death Valley. This is, you climb thousands of feet to get up into this area. I have no conception of how he pulled this off. And how at the end, how he would have gotten down off that mountain. Okay, eventually, hopefully, we'll get to do a pilgrimage to Israel. We'll go out to the mountain of temptation. You'll see what I'm talking about. It was an ordeal for him. And then the tempter approached him. So Satan waited till he was good and involved and said to him, here we go, temptation number one. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He said in reply, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. All right, so the first temptation, you're hungry. Bread is perfectly reasonable and good to eat. Why don't you make some? Yeah, use some of those miraculous powers you got. And what is Jesus' response here? What does it mean? That he's human. That he's human. Yeah, first of all, he doesn't, doesn't give in. use the uh, little divine powers button. I will now activate my X-Man powers and make bread out of stones. No, he doesn't do that. Do we, can we do that during the fast? I mean, I guess we could open the fridge, pull out the frozen steaks or whatever, right? Freezer. But no. So he absolutely plays the game the way we do. What else? Look at what he says in response. That's not what sustains him. What is this sustains him? It's not. The bread isn't what sustains What sustains him? His relationship with God the Father. Right. There is a reasonable reliance that we have on ourselves as human beings where we work hard, we plant things, we gather it, we prepare it, we cook it, we eat it. That's the normal human mode. Every single one of those things, the ground, the seed, the rain that falls, the physical ability that you have, the mind that you have to understand the science of vegetation, where did all that come from? It's all gift. So sometimes we think of ourselves as very self-reliant, reasonable. We tend to be. We ought to be industrious and work for ourselves and not throw ourselves in someone else and make someone else take care of us. Okay, granted. But let's not forget reality here. It's all gift from above. So Jesus is saying to Satan, look, I'm not going to be self-reliant in this situation. The Spirit led me into the wilderness. I am not going to be eating bread. I'm not going to be turning rocks into bread. I will trust the word of God because it's by the word of God that all things are sustained. How are things created? And God said, let there be light. Remember? The eternal word is by whom all things were created. And the irony is, who's the one saying this? Jesus. The son of God himself. 
And he says, who is the word of God, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. The son says, I am going to depend on the father. Which means, if he can depend on the father and not trust his own essence, surely we who do not have divine essences should probably trust the father too. So, this is an assault on self-reliance in a way that is forgetful of the overarching thanksgiving we ought to have to God. All right, fine. Devil doesn't quit. Then the devil took him to the holy city over to Jerusalem and made him stand on the parapet of the temple. So all the way to the highest point of the temple. And the devil said to him, if you were the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and with their hands they will support you lest you're, you dash your foot against the stone. All right, so Satan is wisening up here. Jesus pulled a fast when he used a little scripture on him. So he decides to say, all right, I'm going to use some scripture on Jesus. Two can play at this game. If you're the son of God, throw yourself from the temple. The angels will catch you. What do you have to worry? Or do you doubt God, Jesus? Hmm. Getting more interesting, isn't it? What does Jesus say? And Jesus answered him. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And what does that mean? Well, it's actually not about trust. It's the opposite. It's the devil who's saying, let's see some faith here. Jump. God will protect you. Trust him. And Jesus is saying, nope. We don't test God. Go to the highest building, Levesque Tower. Is that the highest around here? One of them? Rhodes. Rhodes Tower. Climb to the top. Don't actually do this. I'm speaking hypothetically. Just go out and just say, Lord, I trust you. I'm going to jump. What do you think is going to happen to you? Yeah, there's always that problem. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm exercising faith here. I'm trusting God. The only things you're allowed to trust God for are the things he authorized you to trust him for. The things that he said. Otherwise, it's a sin of presumption. Where do we get off telling God that he has to do a miracle to save us? Think of the unbelievable audacity and hubris that that would be. We do not dictate terms to God by our own actions. If we violate the laws of nature, we pay for it. Splat. And Jesus says to Satan, no, 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 no. If God wants to do something with his angels, that's his business. Don't cite me texts about angels. We do not put God to the test. Do you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel? King Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to toss you into the flaming furnace if you do not worship my statue. And they said, O king, live forever. But look, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the flaming furnace. But if not, we will still not worship your damn statue. They figured it was roast time. They knew God could deliver them, but that's not what normally happens. Normally when you get thrown into a fiery furnace, you burn. That's what they thought was going to happen. 
In this particular instance, that's not what happened. They were delivered. But if somebody says to you, worship my golden statue, I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace, you're going to be making the same decision, aren't you? I'm not going to worship you. And what's going to happen when you get thrown in the fiery furnace? You're going to ignite. Because that's natural law. That's what happens. Okay? And you can't make a declaration beforehand. God is not going to allow this to happen. No. This is what you privately hope. This is what you desperately plead for as you get closer and closer to the fire and you feel, oh, how did this? Oh, please, 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 please. Whoosh. Done. Okay, that was sizzling and that hurt and then it's over. But every now and then, God does something that shocks everybody, like the fiery furnace escape. But we never put God in a position where he has to do a miracle to save us. He's the one that decides the supernatural interventions, not us. Satan tries to trick Jesus into showing his faith, but in fact, that's not faith. It's the sin of presumption. Jesus sees right through it and negates it. Third temptation. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their magnificence. And he said to him, all these I shall give to you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. And Jesus said to him, get away, Satan. It is written, the Lord your God shall you serve and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him and angels came and ministered to him. All right, what's going on in this case? Tempting him with the world. Yeah, I'll give you everything. Now keep in mind, Jesus was the king. He actually had a right to the world. People like Napoleon and Hitler and Stalin and Caesar, right? They think they own the world or they would like to. But Jesus actually is the king. So what is the devil really doing here? He's giving him a quicker path to get there. There's two paths. There's the horrifying one that leads to the cross. Or you can have this quick version. Right? What does Jesus say? We worship God. It doesn't matter what you offer us. We're not going to bow down and worship your statue. We're not going to turn these, bread, these stones into bread. And we're certainly not going to abandon the path of charity and love for others that is our mission just to get a bunch of riches and kingdoms and power. I mean, this is impressive, right? All three of these temptations, Jesus rejects. Now, we have three elements of our fast, of our Lenten preparation. And notice there are three temptations. Notice the parallelism. 40 days, 40 days. Whoops, stones to bread temptation. Jump from the temple. Temptation three. Worship Satan and get the kingdom early. Okay, our Lenten observance.
Now, you know that there are three things we do during Lent. We fast and abstain, number one. Number two, we give alms. And number three, we pray. So, which of these do you think maps onto which of these three things? Fasting for number one, that seems pretty easy, right? Fasting and abstinence. Remember fasting, we reduce the amount we take in. Abstinence, we eliminate the choice foods, okay? We do both, fasting and abstinence. Uh, worship Satan to get the kingdom early. So our fasting is ultimately about stretching ourselves and our self-reliance, and we stretch ourselves and put ourselves to that extra test. Again, we don't go too far. We avoid extremism. Alms, uh, explain why. Yeah, exactly. Um, here, it's to get all the kingdoms and goodies of the, of the world, the power and the wealth is in the rich. Instead of seeking those things, you instead give to those people who are in need. So you see, the, it's the antithesis. Instead of taking everything for ourselves, we give to the person who has need. And that, of course, only leads one remaining option, so we kind of know what goes here. And how does prayer link up with, just jump from the temple. God will take care of you. Instead of being presumptuous, what do we do? Humility. It's the prayer of humility. You see this? Famous Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said, the door to the kingdom of heaven is a low one, and the only ones who enter crawl. So Lent is a period of remembrance, thoughtfulness, and self-examination and repentance. And that's where, Grant, when you said we should give up sins, yeah. We should give up sins. So the devil was working for 40 days? Well, the devil was there periodically, and these are at least three of the temptations that Jesus got hit with. We really don't know how far and how extensive this went, but this is what's recorded for us. At the end of the ordeal, both the fasting part of it and the mental and spiritual oppression, uh, Jesus was so absolutely wiped out and exhausted that angels had to come and minister to him. Essentially, he needed medical care. Did he ever start hearing? We don't know, but we know that Satan really did come and he really did hear him. So without those angelic help, it's hard to see how Jesus could ever have gotten off that mountain. So he was almost going too far. Okay? Again, remember, we do not live the lives of monks. Okay, we have responsibilities. We have jobs. We have school. We have children that are parents that we have to help take care of. We have responsibilities to our spouses. In the normal structure of the world, we do not go off and do 40 days doing nothing but drinking water and not tell anybody because we're trying to be so spiritual. Okay, this is imprudent in the extreme. This does not make you better. This makes you proud and arrogant. Remember, Jesus is constantly criticizing the Pharisees for exactly this kind of extremism. We do what we do. We put ourselves to stress, but we do not go too far but we also pretend, don't pretend like it's no big deal and do too little. And that's where you have to ask yourself, what is good for you this year? 
Each year, as a general trend, I try to do a little bit more. Okay? And that will then stretch, you know. And I'm telling you, you won't believe the impact this will have on your Easter. Okay? It will really, really transform your Easter celebration. There's a um, classic German hmm. Of his decisions, which is, I just I never realized how they aligned to those things. Yeah. So the, the God part of it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but we're not, we're not participating in the Islamic methods. You have forms of fasting in lots of different traditions, but we're only right now talking about the Christian tradition and the way that we use it and the way that we balance it with this other, with this other event. There, there are certain distinctives. Uh, from what I understand in Ramadan, people don't eat all day, and then they usually eat at night. Yeah. When you are part of a religious system where the rule is more important than what it's for, then you end up with these kinds of disasters. Okay, the church never forgets what the rules are for. Okay, remember, we always ask the question, what is Christianity for? Ultimately, it's about human completeness and love for God and our neighbor. So, for example, let's suppose it's Friday during Lent and you don't eat any meat, but some friends of yours invite you over. They're not Catholic. They don't know the first thing about you know, religion. And they're serving steaks. What do you do? Say, boy, this sure looks good. Let's dig in. Exactly. It would be rude and offensive not to participate. Now, tomorrow, what do you do then? You shift your fast day. Not a problem. Of course. You might have to. But the point is, we remember that the rule is for sake of the people, not the people for the sake of the rule. So no. Charity always takes precedence. So if you can maintain your fast on the day you want to do your fast, obviously you do that. But if you're dealing with a person who doesn't know anything about our tradition, and they're trying to be gracious and kind to you to do something like give you a meal or a big bottle of wine, and let's say you decide you're not going to drink wine, well, you know what? You just put that aside and you enjoy the celebration with these people. Because remember, love always triumphs over the rule. And you remember, Jesus repeatedly in his ministry got so aggravated with the Pharisees, and he would deliberately aggravate them by breaking their rules because of what the rules were for. Right? So remember how he healed people on the Sabbath? And their rules allowed them to help their, their crippled sheep 
or crippled donkey out of a hole on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, but I can't heal a lame man on the Sabbath. Right? They had lost track of what this was for. So we always remember that charity trumps the rule. And we give of ourselves to others when they're in need. And then we can just rearrange it so that we can try to maintain that observance. But never forget what this is about. It's about love. Don't become a legalist, okay, a Gnostic about rules where you forget what it's for. And on the other hand, don't go the other vert way and become a, um, a, just an animalistic hedonist and say, I don't need to fast. I'm just going to eat whatever I want. If you do that, you'll miss out on the benefits of what prayers and alms and the fast together can do for your life. Okay? And remember, we're all doing this. So it's, it's just an extraordinary thing when you remember as a community we're joining in this thing together. Okay? And it's great to know that, okay, you know, James is doing this and Heidi's doing this and the specifics maybe don't, we don't know. But on Fridays, we know we're all like not eating the meats. And so you should go over the exact days when we do fasting. Yeah, the Fridays, the Good Friday and the uh, 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 Ash Wednesday started with that. We would eliminate those. Eggs? No. Uh, honey, I don't know that you did he, but I missed he the, did, did, he did. I started with the rules first. The Ash Wednesday and Good Friday? Mm -hmm. So when you okay. say like 50%, like one minute. Say it like four eggs, I got like two. Yeah. Okay. As a rule of thumb. But again, that's going to depend on you and what you might have to do. If you have to show up and do something, if you have a, suppose you're taking the SAT that day. Well, just say for sake of argument. Well, obviously, you're not going to compromise your entire college edu education, right? So maybe you go ahead and eat all those eggs, and then after the SAT, <laughs> you cut down or something. Okay? I just want you to understand that extremism undermines charity. And we never have the right, in the name of spirituality, to not love another person. That is the Pharisee error. Also, I want to address, there, there, are some, there are some movements that you sometimes hear about where some people will try to outdo Jesus. Okay, so they might say, well, instead of fasting for the four days of Lent and the five days of Holy, Holy Week, 45 days, let's do 90 days. We'll double it and we'll be extra spiritual. All right? Easter is not 90 days. Easter is 40 days. Jesus did not fast for 90 days. He fasted for 40 days. We do not try to outdo God. Mm -mm. So if you hear about people that decide they're going to be extra, whatever, go extreme, and let's do it for 90 days, well, what, 91 out 120? Why not a half the year, 180 days? Because that is not the normal human mode. That is not the tradition that we have come into. The fast is succeeded by the feast. We do not try to deliberately go too far in an effort to somehow think that this is going to be more impressive to God or will be holier. If you really want to be holy, love your neighbor. Never put your spirituality before your duty to your neighbor. Because the ultimate expression of spiritualism, spirituality, is love. Okay, so don't fall for these little things. Some, you hear all kinds of, the Catholic world is filled with sometimes strange little ideas we hear about. 
So if you think, hear about something like that, think, no, I'm pretty sure Lent was 40 days. I'll stick with that. All right? Okay, any questions on the details of Lent or the rationale for how this emerges and these traditions emerge out of Jesus' temptation and how we fulfill them before we move into the, the deeper theory that explains some of this? So where can you find a good fish well, they, um, well, before COVID, well, I won't know so about that, but before COVID, there were, you could find them a lot. Just go online, you'll find them. Now that COVID is in play, I don't know if anyone has restored their fish fries. They might have. There are some. So just look online, and I'm sure you can find one if you want to go. Now, during, um, during one of the, uh, okay, I forgot to mention this. So during, uh, during Lent, is it Fridays? Or Thursdays? When is Stations of the Cross? Fridays, right? Fridays. During Fridays of Lent, there's this event called the Stations of the Cross. And the Stations of the Cross are, I think there's 12, maybe there's 14. Yes. But they're moments of Jesus' passion where he started his walk from Pilate's judgment seat. Uh, and remember how he had to carry that cross? All the way to Golgotha. And along the way, there are these poignant moments that the Gospels record where at one point he fell, and another point somebody came and wiped his face with a, with a rag, and somebody gave him a drink. And, so the, and somebody said something, he said something back. And so every year in um, Jerusalem, if we ever get to do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you'll we'll literally go on the actual path that Jesus took to Golgotha. And all along the way, these are the real stations of the cross, and we'll do the prayers and go through what happened, all right? There we get to Golgotha, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where the cross actually, that's the location of the true cross. And then you get to go and actually go and pray there, because that's the culmination. Now, lots of people can't do that every year, right? Some people can't even do it once in their lifetime. So what we do is we participate in this in an anticipatory and remote version, which we call the Stations of the Cross. And if you look around a lot of churches, you'll see these Roman numerals, six on one side, six on the other. Those are the stations. Okay, and different kinds of churches will do it differently. Sometimes there's a small number of people, so you'll literally, just like you're on the Via Dolorosa, which is the path in, a, in Jerusalem, you'll literally go to each station, and you'll say the prayers, and then you go to the next one, literally walking with Jesus. If you have a really big crowd, you might just sort of aim with your bodies at each station, and the priest will see to lead you through it. Okay, so it's a, it's a tremendous meditation, and again, you'll notice in the church, we, we enact things, we reenact things a lot because it helps it become present to us. So we have on our schedule, one of the days you'll see on a Friday, we're going to do, we're going to go to the, one of the St. Mary's Stations of the Cross. Uh, and we'll do that together. And then after that, we're planning to do a, a Lenten Friday fast uh, meal. Probably we'll find some place where we can get cheese pizzas or something that's, you know, obviously not, not a pizza pizza. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Something covered in vegetables. <laughs> All right, and we'll all go over there. We'll, we'll uh, have a, a, a celebration, but of course, it's not a celebration, you understand? But sharing together in a meal like that, uh, which isn't quite the same thing as a fish fry, but it will still be a chance for us to do it together, which is what you were saying that, which is why it, it struck me that this is already part of our plan. Uh, but you guys can do other things too throughout, okay? They do it every Friday on, uh, at all the parishes. The stations, the cross. Now, be cautious, though. Um, here, we have three different churches in our parish. 
uh, and Father Vince is doing in a rotation. So one will be St. Mary's, then the next week will be St. Ladislaw, you know, and then Corpus Christi, and then. So there's a schedule. And if you look at the schedule for RCIA, we're going to do the one that St. Mary's on that on the particular date. If you want to do all of them, which you're welcome to do, just make sure you get the Lenten schedule they released last Sunday. And uh, they it kind of laid out where everything's going to be, or I think that'll be on the, on the website too, if, on the church website. Uh, go there and you can find out where each one so you don't go to the wrong location. Okay. It's too tricky when we have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, different churches here. All right, so any questions about this before we get into the nature of suffering? Last meal? Last supper. Wouldn't that play into a I guess probably before he died, right? The last supper? Yeah. That's the, that's the uh, institution of the Eucharist. That's when he said, this is my body, right? And that will take place on Holy Thursday. Okay. All right. And that's when we commemorate the giving of the, of the Eucharist and uh, the betrayal. Okay. Uh, because that's Judas then. You, you, uh, I, I take it you've been reading the Bible, the, the, the whole story. The, no, well, do, make sure you read the Gospels if you're not familiar with the story. Each one has a slightly different version, which gives you a big picture. And we will literally go through it in church. Uh, Holy Thursday, again, we'll be all together, um, sitting together for all these events. It's going to be wonderful. So you'll literally get to go through every part together. Uh, and we will participate where we're the crowd so when Pontius Pilate, whoever's going to represent Pilate, says, well, what should I do with Jesus? We're going to all shout, crucify him. Yeah. So we remember what our sins did and put him on the cross, because this is a reality situation. All right, so it's really something. So Holy Thursday is going to be extraordinary. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, in a church. Yeah. It's a mini play. It's a big, it's a big deal. It's really, it's a short, Holy Week, if, if you've never done Holy Week in a, in a Catholic church, you are in for a, a ride. And we get to do this every year. So it's this we are looking forward to. It's the big deal. And that's why fasting is such a big deal. How heavy was the cross? Well, it, it's, it's hard to say because there's debate about whether Jesus was carrying just the cross piece or the entire thing. Odds are it was the cross piece because the Romans probably had the posts already over there. But still, it's a big piece of wood. And it wouldn't have been as big of a deal because the typical um, person, you are crucified, you go in to be crucified. Jesus was scourged first, torn to shreds by the cat of nine tails because typically scourging was a torturous punishment that was supposed to teach you a valuable lesson if it didn't kill you. You never ever scourged someone and then crucified them. Because by the time they're scourged, they're half dead already. Pilate scourged Jesus so that he could then get a pity party to go when he brought him out. And the people would be like, come on, look at the guy. He's had enough. Now let's just everybody go home and be reasonable. They were not reasonable. That's when we all shout, crucify him. So Jesus has to then be crucified after he's already been scourged and lost God knows how much blood. We'd have to get an expert. Maybe a doctor to tell us just how much blood he lost. But again, if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you see how beat up he is. So he couldn't make it. That's why he fell. And then the Romans grabbed this guy, Simon of Cyrene, and said, Simon, you're carrying the cross. Isn't the fact that he was only on the cross for three hours? Indicative. Because it was supposed, like, that could last for days. 
Yeah. You can, be up there you can be up there for a long time. And he was out. And he was so, so far gone already. Yeah. He got the worst of it from the Romans. All right. So speaking of suffering, let's, let's talk about suffering. OK? You have 15 minutes. I have 15 minutes to discuss suffering. Yeah, but he was so beaten up. Again, The Passion of the Christ, that's another thing some people do. Like on Good Friday, they might take a look at that film. It's really an extraordinary representation. It's horrific. It's horrific. All right. So the general rule of suffering is this. Let's avoid it. Who wants to suffer? Okay. This is very reasonable. Jesus didn't want to suffer. What does he say in the garden prayer? Over and over again, to the point where he's sweating profusely from the intensity of his prayer. What is he saying to the Father? Why have you forsaken me? No, that's on the cross. No, that's on the cross. Yes, if it is possible or permissible, let this cup pass by me. In other words, this is really going to hurt. Could we go back to the planning and just check? Maybe we missed something. People miss things. Maybe another plan that was in a deeper file, file folder Z. Right? He knows what's coming. And he does not want to suffer like this. If you are someday challenged to the extent of your faith where you're going to be led to your martyrdom, the night in prison, the night before, you are going to be terrified. And that should not humiliate you because Jesus was terrified. Suffering is horrible. And a torturous death is horrible. And Jesus was not at all unreasonable saying, Father, if this cup can pass by me, let it happen. But every time he said that, he said what we always must add, yet not my will, but thine be done. Don't make me go through this, but if it's the only way, then I will do it. Hour after hour, he prayed this prayer. So as Christians, as Catholics, we are like anyone else. We are like our Lord. We do not want to suffer. We do not try to inflict suffering on ourselves because somehow this makes us spiritual. That is outrageous. But there are times in our lives when pain serves a purpose. Even though we do not think that suffering is something that we desire, we also do not think that suffering is evil in itself. And I gave you the examples earlier, athletic training. Remember the first day of practice after the long summer? Oh, it's painful. Yeah. Okay. Boot camp. Moral discipline from your parents. Fasting in Lent. There are many of these kinds of cases where we put ourselves through an ordeal because it's going to get us to some better thing. It's a means to an end. When suffering becomes an end in itself, that's where we've crossed the line. But suffering is not bad in itself. The people who say suffering is bad in itself are the hedonists. Because the hedonists say, 
that pleasure is good. Well, if pleasure is goodness, then its opposite, which of course is pain, must be evil. And in the medical realm, you're very familiar with this doctrine, the people who say we must administer pain drugs at all costs because pain is evil. Never should anyone ever suffer pain. No pain, no gain. Well, that's the military and athletic doctrine. But on the other hand, you have the hedonist side, which is avoid pain at all costs. On the opposite side, as usual, this is one extreme. The other extreme is the extremity of pain. That's the deficiency. And there, again, we find our religious Gnostics who are all about pain. Let us suffer. Bring it on. We embrace it. Because every time we suffer, we get closer to God and further damage our own humanity. Well, humanity is not your enemy, and suffering is not the good. Suffer less, love more. How about that for an idea? You know what I'm talking about? This kind of, this kind of crazy person? So we have, as usual, our two extremes. What is the virtue? What is the golden mean? The virtue of suffering is one of our cardinal virtues that we call courage. St. Thomas calls it fortitude. St. Paul calls it perseverance. It's endurance. And you do not endure things that are easy. You endure things that are hard. So there are times in our lives when we have to deal with suffering. When you love other people and you care for them, you're going to suffer because they're going to do things that disappoint you. They're going to be in situations where they can't do something for themselves and it's going to cut into your life. They're going to be thankless when you're self-giving to them and you don't understand why they don't have any appreciation at all. The only one who notices what you're doing is God. But then the only person who notices what you're doing is God. So you keep going. Okay, we're all going to face the suffering of our own mortality. So in this human life, there is no way to avoid suffering. You will all face it. You'll face it in your own life. You'll face it in your family's lives. You'll face it in your friends. You'll face it with your spouse. You'll face it from your enemies. You'll face it for your enemies when you try to forgive them and do good things to the ones that hurt you. There are a lot of very trying things in this world. We do not need to go out and find more. We have enough. But when we suffer for the right reasons, and I'm not talking about getting arrested for theft at your job and getting three years in prison. I'm talking about suffering for the right reasons. Suffering for charity. Suffering for justice. Suffering because you accept your mortality. Ash Wednesday, when we bow down and receive the ashes, we're recognizing our mortality. So when we suffer righteously, when we endure and hold the line, we are exhibiting this extraordinary virtue of perseverance and courage. And Paul says something that is just mind-blowing in one of the Corinthian letters. He says, when we suffer in this way, we make up what is missing in Christ's suffering. Like, what? 
How could anything be missing in Christ's suffering? Well, Christ is the head. We are the... His suffering is not done. Christ is with us when we endure. We are with him in his passion. So the church calls this, you'll hear this term sometimes, co-suffering. One of the central ideas we have in the faith is the idea of cooperation. Our free will does not mean that we can climb our way to heaven. God's grace does not mean that we're compelled to accept God's love. God has a role, we have a role in our redemption. So we are co-redeemers. We are cooperating with the grace of God in our lives. When we suffer, this is another form of cooperation. Jesus says, if you've done this for the least of these, you've done this for me. Remember this about just giving someone a cup of water? There is an element in which your hands of charity and care, when you care for a parent, okay, even if you're not thanked, even if you're not noticed or understood, your hands are Jesus' hands. Think about that. Jesus is right there. And the suffering and the endurance that you have to go through, or you and you, okay, it's co-suffering. You are participating of Jesus' passion on the cross. And his passion is an eternal moment. Remember, he's the son of God. And his eternal now suffering, right, takes in all of the suffering of the body of Christ throughout the whole. So when one suffers, we all suffer. We all care. And Jesus is there in the midst of it. That's how we think about suffering. We do not seek it out. In the early churches, the Romans were going after the Christians. Some Christian young people thought, let's get martyred. Yeah. And the bishops were like, whoa. Nobody runs to the Romans seeking martyrdom. When the Romans come, you run away. If they catch you, all right, that's different. But no gung-ho brazenness, you hear, this is not courage, brazenly throwing your lives away. Save your lives. But if you can't and they get you, don't sacrifice to Caesar. Then take your martyrdom. But not everyone is called to martyrdom. But we're all called to charity. Don't shortcut your own charity by being a fool. So we do not seek and embrace suffering like these crazy religious wacko Gnostics. But when it's put upon us, and when we have things we'd like to do in our lives, and there's a lot of things we'd like to do, like eat great foods, drink great wine, but when doing those things get in the way of charity, well, love is more important than food, isn't it? Food is a good thing. Pleasure is a good thing. But charity is a better thing. The fast helps us remember the priority. 
The fast teaches us to say, I'm not going to do the thing that I want to do because instead I'm going to give alms. I'm going to choose love. Pleasure is not evil. God made a world filled with pleasures, many of which he knew we would not discover for millennia, like the taste of king crab. Can you imagine just waiting for the first human to discover king crab? How about the smell of a truffle? How about coffee? Central and South America, North America, they didn't know what coffee even was. How about chocolate? The Central Americans, they knew what chocolate was. The Europeans, the Romans, no chocolate. The Babylonians, no chocolate. The Egyptians, no chocolate. Imagine a world without chocolate. This is still relating to what, though, right? Yes. Okay. What I'm trying to help you understand is that God loves pleasure. God loves giving you pleasant and wonderful things. The world is filled with good things. So pleasure is not evil, but when we put pleasure ahead of our duties of love, we cross a line because some goods are better than others. And the highest good is love. And Lent, the entire period of constantly saying, not I, but you, I'm going to put my food down in order to learn to love better. And it's harder to love now because I'm stressed by this and I'm feeling it. That's okay. Okay, spouses, future spouses, spouses, <laughs> those on our video, you're going to experience this. But if you're communing with one another on a regular basis, you can talk this out and say, I'm really having a harder time today. Okay, that's all right. I'm going to love you a little bit more. Help out. Okay, everyone understand the doctrine of co-suffering and how Lent fits into this, and how we're not extremist on either side. Okay, you see again the typical vice structures. Choose the virtue. Choose love. All right, finally. Do I have any time left? I gotta, I gotta talk about the barrage. Okay, finally. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He called it the barrage. About this point, if not sooner, but certainly by this point, many people who are coming into the church suddenly notice an uptick of challenges and difficulty in their lives. All of a sudden, they lose their job. All of a sudden, their kids are getting sick. All of a sudden, there's a lot of conflict with their spouse that makes no sense whatsoever. All of a sudden, a parent dies, and then an uncle, within two weeks. Some of my students in the past have had, all of a sudden, very bizarre but very real paranormal things going on in their rooms. What is going on? Well, you may have experienced some or all something in your life that seems a little extreme. If that happens to you, C.S. Lewis called this the barrage. This is the enemy's last attempt to stop you from joining the church. You are about to throw off the shackles of demonic slavery and enter into the liberation of the children of God. The demons are not interested in you doing that. And so they can scare you off or intimidate you or cause you to get frustrated, or distract you, they'll do whatever they can come up with. So, one of the reasons we fast, one of the reasons we examine, one of the reasons we go through the scrutinies, one of the reasons we pray, is we understand that we're at war. We're at war not with our neighbors, we're at war with the demonic. 
They want to oppose our free choice for God. And so you need to buckle down and say, I don't care about these problems. This is a form of co-suffering. It's to be expected. This happens to other people. I'm not alone. And it's okay. So if you're struggling, if you're being filled with doubts that don't have any rational basis, you know those kind of doubts? Where you say, well, what's wrong? I have no idea. Well, that's weird. The doubt that says, well, I'm not sure this is true. That's an intellectual doubt. Perfectly reasonable. The doubts that like, I don't know if I want to do this. Okay. Why? (laughs) Right? People can get hit by all kinds of things. So hold to your course. Turn your ship into the waves and break through. If you turn sideways, what happens to a boat in the waves? Turns, flips. So keep your nose ahead. So that just happens during Lent? It happens to people that are about to come into the church like you. Not baptized yet. It's already happening? Well, don't give up. Okay? Don't give up. Oh, you're running away after this one? As soon as you heard the details on fasting? I should have given him every single day all 40 days. All right. If you're struggling with certain things and you're not sure how to deal with it and you want to talk to, about, to us about it, of course, you can talk to us in private. We'll be happy to try to help you through. But we've experienced these kinds of things with students in the past. Okay? And in the end, as soon as they got through, like the paranormal stuff all stopped immediately. People's job issues, they seem to fade back to normalcy. So it's just these things happen. Okay? Yeah. It's weird. But we wanted to let you be aware of that.